since we're talking about this, I did use chat GPT as a lawyer and it did help me out. Give legal so advice. I, uh, I reduced my, I'm sorry. <laughs> it gave me legal advice. Um, and since I paid it off, I don't care. I'll just tell you. All players, low down, all right, we're live. It's been a minute, hasn't it, between us, Jake, Tim, and I. So today we have no guest, no interview. We're just going to catch up. Episode six is the last time the three of us got together. So how's it going? Good, man. It's been uh, an interesting couple of weeks, hasn't it? It has. There's definitely been some uh, some some drama, and then I took a vacation, and then I came back to more drama, and uh, it just reinforces do not take vacations. We got Chinese balloons, autonomous spider aircraft, banks melting down. I mean... Yeah, TikTok in Congress, AI is going crazy on the internet. So let's get started. Well, Tim, you haven't pitched in yet, so welcome, Tim. He's the, uh, you know, the quiet man in the back of the room. Hello. Pondering, judging, what he does. I'm just, uh, I'm still just uh, admiring Jake's uh, viral tweet the other day from South By, so. Yeah, let's start with the tweet and then the context of how that relates to uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, so the tweet was very simple. It's the picture, picture of a menu, Harry Steakhouse in Austin during South by Southwest uh, with an SVB logo on the menu. And the tweet is just, I'm at an SVB steak dinner and they haven't asked me to go Dutch yet. And <laughs> because, because this is the first day of my arrival at South by, it's the Thursday when SVB is melting down. I'm on the plane on the way to Austin, Texas. And I started getting text messages from all of our founders saying, you know, is SVB melting down? Do I need to move my money out? What's going on? What's the thing to do here? I don't tend to buy internet on the airplane because I'm trying to get like work done instead of check my email and be on Twitter. But I bought the internet, saw what was going on and like started trying to do what I could from the air. What was funny is I had just gotten uh, my way into the SVB steak dinner that night at Harry's. Our pal Jimmy Colrain got me an invite to SVB. I do not bank with SVB. And so I get into Austin. I've been like dealing with founders all day long, um, trying to figure out what's going on. I meet up with some friends at the Driscoll. We have a drink. We're all going to the SVB dinner. And uh, the conversation is, you know, sh should we even go? Are they going to be there? Like, this is going to be super awkward, right? Uh, so we go, obviously. We show up. There's like maybe 25 people there. Presumably everyone there, or almost everyone there, is a fund manager that banks with SVB, right? I don't, but presumably almost everyone there does. Otherwise, why would you be invited to this dinner? Everyone's standing around, drinking cocktails, having a great time, chatting about everything, but not chatting about SVB. The host asks us all to sit down, dinner starts, doesn't say a single word about the fact that there's been a run on the bank and that, uh, you know, they're at this point only like eight hours away from the FDIC stepping in and, and shutting the bank down. Isn't that kind of awkward? You're like, like this is like really awkward, huh? We're having this dinner, this nice steak dinner. No one wants to talk about the elephant in the room. Super awkward. Super awkward. I mean, Maybe they wanted to get the steak first. I'm chatting about it like in the corner of the room with like the, the people next to me, right? But at the end of the night, I, I grab the host and I pull her aside and I'm like, look, are you actually not going to address the elephant in the room. This is crazy, right? Like you have to say something about what's going on today. 
and uh, she just she towed the party line. She said, you know, this is just a blip. It's like an income statement issue. It's not a balance sheet thing. We're strong. Uh, don't worry. We're going to be fine. But then the next thing she said was, and I've been getting calls from recruiters all day, so I feel okay. And I was like, oh, yeah, she is. Oh, She's, uh, at least in the back of her mind, she's sort of already checked out. The flip side is I feel, in retrospect, uh, a lot of empathy for the, the SVB hosts, right? Like, I'm sure this dinner had been planned months in advance. They probably already paid for it. The bank melts down, like, hours before the dinner happens. Like, what could they do? They kind of had to show up. It's a public company, so they basically have to say exactly what the CEO said in the official public statements. You can't say anything else. But it makes for like a truly bizarre moment in time. That is weird. So so for everyone who uh, is not tracking, this is a little bit of old news by the time this comes out. But again, this is a podcast about national security. So can we just zoom out, uh, Jake, if you want to tie it back into like why, what is the, what is SVB and why does it matter for national security? Yeah, so that was the the interesting storyline that developed over the weekend at South by was the national security angle. So Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, is the the largest bank in the tech sector. So they bank 40% roughly of technology startups in the US. Uh, now some of the startups obviously are photo sharing apps and dog dating apps and stuff that like no one really cares about, but you know, and you, you don't care about dog dating apps. What's wrong with you? I want dogs to be happy too, Mike. But um, I, I say <laughs> I'm old fashioned. You just you meet at the playground. Meet at the playground. I love it. <laughs> Run up and sniff. <laughs> no, but like some of these companies, just as many are, uh, you know, rocket launch companies, directed energy companies, AI companies, right? Like companies that are building national security relevant technology. Maybe Shield AI. Maybe Andrel, Um, You know, I don't know, but. They bank a lot of very important businesses. And there was a real risk that if the deposits were not backstopped by the FDIC and freed up on Monday, that a lot of these companies wouldn't be able to make payroll. Um, even if they had sort of the assets you'd need to have to make payroll in different places, whatever, some of the payroll companies themselves banked with SVB and SVB handled sort of the clearing. So there was a, a chance that these companies would uh, miss payroll. And because of that, some of them might go under particularly companies that had most of their treasury with SVB if it hadn't been backstopped by the FDIC. But anyway, while we were at South by, our friend Jason Rathji from the, the new DOD's Office of Strategic Capital was in town to talk about what they were doing, presumably not expecting to be at South by Southwest in the middle of a bank run. But it was interesting because he did address it um, a little bit on, I believe, Saturday. So we're like a day and a half into the, the bank run and the sort of the class of SVB. And it sounded like his office had become somewhat of a hub on the defense side for trying to figure out what you might do if, uh, if there wasn't a, an FDIC solution, at least in the short term, to backstop some of the most important technologies, important companies, you know, on Monday. So thankfully, uh, we don't have to test whatever they had discussed behind closed doors, but at least it's comforting to know that there is an office now to address these issues that they were having discussions. One of the things that they, I saw a few articles about, they discussed the accelerated payments, which is something that they used as a playbook from COVID when they had some supply chain disruptions for defense companies and the employees couldn't come to work and so they couldn't meet their contractual obligations. They did this accelerated payment uh, scheme where they would pay them ahead of time for the work to be done to basically give them the cash flow to keep the keep the lights on. 
one of the things I thought's interesting about SVB that most people I don't think are aware of, it's obviously a bank and a bank does things. It takes in money and then it gives out money, like pretty obvious. But the way that the business model for that bank worked, uh, then we can talk about how it got into trouble, but the way it worked, which is what really became, I think, the, the, the pressure point on, on the tech sector is that it gave out a lot of loans, but the conditions of those loans is that those companies would have to then do all of their banking through this, the SVB. So, hey, we'll give you uh, a $10 million loan to go do this stuff, but your payroll, your company credit cards, everything has to be run through us. And so when you had that, should we take our money out of the bank? If the bank had not failed, you would have defaulted on the obligation of the loan, which I think was the a really source of stress initially for some of the, the startups of, well, if I default on the loan, I can't repay it. And now who's going to, you know, who's going to back me next. And so it was, it was kind of a waiting game until then it wasn't. And then there was just, you know, the massive, massive run. I think when the FDIC stepped in, there was about a 25 to 30% withdrawal of the, whatever it was, 170, $180 billion of assets like that. Is that right? I heard that there was a, the demand on Friday for withdrawals. So this is the day the FDIC stepped in was a hundred billion dollars. And I think on Thursday it might've been like 40 or 50, but I'm not sure about the Thursday number. And then for, uh, for the defense stuff, I, I went back and looked at it cause there was a lot of stuff talking about the bank and talking about we shouldn't bail them out, which is a whole, I think a misconstrued conversation. But when you look at venture capital in the defense tech sector in particular, in 2011, venture capital, Jake, you, this is your, this is your job jar, but 2011 timeframe, there's probably less than a hundred million dollars of venture capital in defense and aerospace, uh, that sector. And then by 2017, that had 10 X to a billion dollars. And now it's somewhere in the six to $7 billion range. So it is a thing, but it's not like you wouldn't be affected. Uh, this is about the time that DIU, uh, the defense innovation unit had started out there when they saw this, this rise of capital, like how can we interact with dual use technology companies, get stuff into the department of defense. And so they were affected. Uh, they had uh, a lot of people out there that were under contract, those small tech startups that were affected by this. So they were looking at the same thing as OSC with Jason was trying to like, Hey, how can we do these acceler accelerated payments? What are the contract mechanisms? So. Definitely ripple through uh, the tech sector. A ripple potentially could have been a massive uh, <laughs> problem through the tech sector and into defense. Luckily and fortunately, uh, people stepped in and uh, did what they had to do. And there's a whole bunch of discussions about investment banking and putting all your money in there. Uh, Jake, if you want to talk about that, happy to talk about it. Tim, any uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you, you pretty much hit it right. Um, the part that was kind of eye-opening to me, right, was the, just the, the random discourse on, on Twitter and, and all the other socials and things like that, where uh, some expectation that, that people, you know, should be, instead of working on their business, that they should be, you know, ensuring that each bank account in there that, you know, has $250,000 and they have, you know, 14 or 200 bank accounts or whatever it is just to, to maintain that deposit insurance. And that to me, I don't know, just kind of rubbed me the wrong way in a little bit, but I mean, you know, whenever you're going to put your money in the bank, obviously you, you know, you accept some risk and there are different things that you can do to sweep that fund, those funds into like, you know, money markets and, and things like that. But when people are, you know, I think the, the realization that I had is whenever you're like two degrees, like removed or two degrees of separation from the problem, right? Like it, it doesn't affect me. 
doesn't affect my friends. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect a friend of a friend, but like their friends, right? It's very, very easy to, uh, it seems to just be really callous about that. Right. Um, and just yeah, flip it and you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's somebody else's problem. It's not going to affect me. And I think that there's a lot more interconnectedness that, you know, these things, they all like just fall, like, just like dominoes, right? One thing affects the next. And then before you know it, sooner or later, something's going to happen. So, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty eye opening. I think at least on my end. Yeah. The, uh, the internet has no empathy. I think empathy is the, is the, is the path to enlightenment, right? You want to know what's going on? Just think about it for a second, have some empathy. And the, you know, for those who were tracking, if the FDIC had not stepped in uh, over the weekend on Monday morning, there probably would have been a, a run on small regional banks, about 2000 banks across the U S that would have not been able to, uh, to meet their obligations as it turns out. And this is kind of why there's an FDIC insurance. If everyone who had money in a bank went to the bank, there's not enough money in the bank to give to the people who want the money. That's the whole point of a bank. It is a, it's a, a little bit of a shell game of moving money around and having available funds for withdrawal. That's why there's withdrawal limits. Uh, so it is not a necessarily a flaw of, of this particular bank. It is how the banking system is set up. You usually don't think about it. Like that's the big difference is a lot of people were thinking about it when they saw what happened with SBP because it's a publicly traded company. They had bought, my understanding is they bought a lot of, uh, long, uh, yield or low yield, long duration bonds when the interest rates were really, really, really low. Those interest rates have gone way, way up. And so they decided to take a loss on over a billion dollars of bonds on paper. And then at the same time went out to go issue some more shares because it's a publicly traded company, which then is saying we need to raise money. And then in the midst of this, the, the leadership of the company completely bobbled the messaging of what they were doing. And that created a lot of angst and that angst is what started the first person going, well, I think I should take my money out. And I think in the sector, that tech sector is very, very small and very, very well connected. And so as Jake was saying, you get, start getting text messages like, Ooh, and now when I run on the bank, what that means is like, you don't want to be the last guy in line because there's no money. That's really what it comes the down to. one rule in a bank run is don't be the last guy in the bank run. Uh, like <laughs> that's right. banks, just like you said, banks are built on psychology. And once the house of cards starts to collapse, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to get out of the way. It's like a freight train. I will say that a lot of the blame for the SVB collapse, I think, uh, rests with, I mean, and it's so stupid. It rests with the corporate communications department of SVB. Um, I mean, I'm part of a bunch of sort of back channel VC groups. And the CEO, I think Thursday morning, Thursday morning or Friday morning, um, hosted like a private chat with the venture funds that bank with SVB and just absolutely bombed the message. I mean, he basically just said, trust us. Uh, we, we were there to support you in hard times. You should be there to support us in hard times. And people left that meeting thinking this bank is in deep, deep shit and then called their portfolio companies and said, get your money out. That's not really a fault of the the communications, right? I mean, that's that's really having an incompetent expert in a position that they probably shouldn't have been in, right? Or somebody that just didn't understand the full picture, um, which goes along with their risk mitigation processes, right? I mean, you know, the, they like to try to blame the Fed. I think was another narrative I saw where it was like nobody could have saw that these rates were going to increase this much, right? And you know, there was a graphic that was circulating now on Twitter that was 
from December of 2020 with the Fed. And they were like, the long-term rate was going to be, you know, two and a half percent, which was still insanely higher than, you know, I think probably like a half of a percent than what they took their bonds out, right? Which was like a 1.8 or 1.9%. And so there's just failure on, on really, you know, I guess I wouldn't say failure. I mean, ultimately, yeah, but it's really just, you know, a failure to identify and mitigate risk in a lot of ways that they just allowed themselves to either through complacency or incompetence or any number of reasons find themselves kind of backed into a corner. Yeah. The uh, side note, this event, besides creating a whole bunch of stuff on social media uh, and memes, there is an entire line of epic t-shirts about the famous 2023 bank run. So there's people like writing like, marathons with the SVP marathon, the bank crowd. And it, it's really good. Oh, nice. so, I gotta love, you gotta love the humor. That's how you get through a lot of this stuff. All right. Let's talk about what is going to be Jake and Tim's favorite topic, which is TikTok. So for those of you who have not been following along the history, Jake hates TikTok with passion and Tim loves TikTok. In fact, Love. All of our, in our group chat, I think almost every text message we get from Tim is, hey, check this out. And it's a link to TikTok. So even though Jake doesn't have the app TikTok and he hates it, he has to click on all of these TikTok URLs to actually see what Tim is talking about, which is, I think, hilarious. And I don't even know. I think half the time Jake's like, I'm not clicking it. I'm not clicking it. And I got to fix the burner phone. Yeah. <laughs> burner phone. a burner phone just for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My, my heart is warm every time I can drop one of those links in there. Maybe not for much longer. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. So, so Tim is one of 150 million Americans that are on TikTok right now. As we're recording this just a few days ago, uh, probably last week now at this time, I've lost track of the days. Uh, the TikTok CEO had a four-hour congressional hearing where he talked about uh, basically got skewered in public soundbite talking points. Uh, but really he was trying to talk about content moderation, mental health impacts of social media, privacy concerns, cybersecurity, and then really the elephant in the room, which is TikTok's relationship to ByteDance, which is um, in China. And there's some stuff with Chinese government policy about that. So that's kind of where we're going to start. And here's why I think it gets touchy is that there's a political angle of this which is the demographic that is mostly affected by this is really the demographic of voters that uh, s some of the political parties are really trying to get after. And so coming after their platform of choice to communicate and again, you know, for entertainment and education is seen as a, a dig against their generation. There's some really, you know, the under 35 crowd, really it's like probably the under, under 25 crowd. So they're getting into voting age and you take their platform away uh, there's some really interesting co quotes from the, co the Commerce Secretary about that. But Tim, do you want to start with TikTok about you tell us how, how much it's awesome and it's safe and all the, the value proposition of it. And then Jake can try to sweep the knee and, and see and tell us like how we're all going to die if we don't uh, delete it. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I will, we'll start off here with a caveat, right? Like I, I don't love, love TikTok, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> however... Look, the backpedaling has already started. What I, what I will say is that uh, there there is no better app out there right now that will give you 
an indication of like what is popping off in in terms of being an early adopter of of whatever space it is that that you have an interest in right you have to be very very self-aware to like i think navigate that app and understand what's going on because it's very insidious in a lot of ways one of the things i absolutely despise about it right and and you can tell that it's there's like little inputs of, of propaganda from the ccp in there is like I think once out of every like 10 videos, you're going to see police brutality or first amendment audit of like some guy going into city hall, you know, kind of being aggressive and being a jerk about stuff to like get a rise out of the cops. Right. And then show that their rights are being like infringed on, um, which I mean, whatever, aside from that actually being like legitimate or not, right. And not going into that argument, you can see how the app and the algorithm is actually trying to so like discord amongst the population right to get us divided amongst each other so you have to have to be have to be self-aware enough to like realize what's going on here right and if and a lot of people i don't think aren't but there is so much goodness that comes out of this right in terms of new apps that are out there and dropped right it's like like product hunt on steroids or things that are you know, people post on twitter and, and like you'll see like a tweet right but then three or four days later, you'll see a news article, right? Like Jake, like your tweet was out there first and then like it took off and then all these other people hit you up and wrote news stories about stuff and you were, you know, cited in a bunch of different things. There's a delay there. And so I think there's value in being able to go straight to the source, right? And seeing like the zeitgeist and public opinion about what's going on. Um, and so you know, whenever the Ukraine war popped off, there were, you could see the Russian soldiers were, you know, seized on tanks and they were flying through wherever they were going. And that hit, you know, I was able to see that before any news or anything else happened anywhere else. So, so there is value, right? But there is also an equal amount of downside, right? There's, there's both there. I think one thing is like what, what you see is your tailored experience based on your browsing history and how the algorithm kind of feeds you content. So if you, if you watched a bunch of twerking videos, it would probably continue to feed you like variants of, you know, TikTok dances and twerking. Uh, it sounds like you, uh, you, you really totally a hypothetical scenario. Yeah. Sure, right, Mike? Totally hypothetical. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, showing me cats getting like, like the, the, the birdie from the badminton thing. Now they're, they're like bouncing them back and forth. It's pretty cool. Nice. So it is tailored. It's a it's a really sticky algorithm. Uh, I've messed around with it. I'm like Jesus. This is uh, this is really uh, really this is really good. But also, you know, it's powerful. So with great power becomes a uh, great responsibility. So now we're gonna flip the script. And Jake, you're gonna tell us why is it so terrible? And we've talked about it before on the on the pod. But just uh, just to reiterate what's going on, I'll, I'll take your quote there. With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, w that's not my quote. Uh, that's from Spider-Man, I believe. You're my Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, you can't have any, any more legal <laughs> copyright thing. <laughs> that's right. Oh God. Don't get me started on the legal issue to deal with, with the merge. Ugh. No, but look, who are we putting that responsibility? Whose hands are we putting that responsibility? And we're putting that responsibility in the hands of the, the Chinese communist party, right? Uh, currently conducting one of the largest, you know, genocides in you know, human history. Um, within their borders against the Uyghur population. So uh, it's, a, it's a powerful tool and it's a tool that can be used for nefarious purposes. Um, I know, Tim, this week you said that after the hearings, you noticed an, an actual uptick in anti-American propaganda in your feed, right? I mean, cause and effect. Um, 
they have absolute control over their algorithm and what they're feeding to America. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So I, when you, I saw you text that, you're like, look at the, the algorithm has changed after the hearing and it's feeding me all of this pro TikTok, anti-Congress. Like, look how, look how ignorant the people asking these questions are. And they're like, they're, you know, condensed like five, 10 second clips of a, of a, a really like dumb question. Um, and just showing the ignorance really, it's like sowing that seed of doubt. And then there were some things that popped up on Twitter. And then here's where I thought it was like the next level. So this is TikTok with its algorithm and it's going viral about, you know, support TikTok, don't, don't support Congress. They took out a, an ad in the Washington post, like a, one of those strip ads on the front page the day after the hearing about supporting TikTok. Like they went full court press. They weren't even hiding it. Like don't ban TikTok. Yeah, even more reason why it should be banned, right? I, and I completely agree with you, Jake. And, and I'll, I'll let you finish here, but but I think ultimately, right? There's no love lost if we can ban this app, and we can ban not necessarily like the app per se, but but the the CCP's influence over our population and their access to to being able to look into what's going on and and just seeing the different data that's out there. Yeah, I mean, we should absolutely view this as a threat and find a way to mitigate it for sure. The legislation is, is that they're proposing, I think, has so many possibilities for unintended consequences, right? And so there's just got to be a different way to do it. Yeah, the, so we'll talk about the Restrict Act in just a minute. That's what uh, Tim's talking about. Um, Jake, have you had a chance to look at that? Yeah, haven't. Haven't dug into it. Okay, well, we'll, we'll just postulate through some of the language. The language is very, very vague uh, on purpose, <laughs> but it... The more vague the language is, the, the more authority you, you grant to the executive branch to do things that maybe or may not were intended. And so, uh, but before we get to that, are you guys tracking what Project Texas is? Yeah. So, so the, have you heard of that? Theoretically, this is, uh, this is TikTok's attempt to store American data only in American servers, basically to corral off the data um, here in the States. Yep. So it is to relocate all U.S. user data to domestic servers, and then they would allow Oracle, which is a U.S. tech company, to basically scrutinize TikTok source code and then be a third-party monitor. That's the pitch. Like, don't ban TikTok. We'll just we'll we're firewall it. And oh, by the way, a lot of other apps actually do that right now. So you have government-provisioned architectures on commercial apps that do that. So they have a U.S.-based server. It's firewalled so it doesn't get routed through China or anything, and now you can use it for government purposes. So it's not something that's unheard of. It's actually very, very common with with apps that have a national security uh, connection. But I don't know if it how feasible this is to. I think it's too little, too late. That's probably going to take a long time to get to where that's actually the solution. I, I mean, I I would imagine that's like a a year away kind of effort if they started today. I, my opinion is I think too little, too late almost impossible to verify that the data is actually staying just in the U.S. and that there is no backdoor for the CCP to access. And I think even if you trust the, the TikTok CEO, which I don't, and if you trust, if you believe everything he's saying, that he means what he's saying, he's earnest about it, you still run into this problem, which is that all Chinese companies have to comply with the Chinese Companies Act. And the Chinese Companies Act, which doesn't get talked about a lot, basically says that any company which has, I think, three party members at the company, so basically any company that is a medium to large size company, has to form a Chinese Communist Party committee inside the company. 
that that committee is then in charge uh, or must take part in major decisions. So uh, M&A decision, decisions, strategic decisions, and the goal of those committees is to make sure that the company is living up to the ideals of the party and facilitating the goals of the party. Those committees uh, ultimately, the expectations that companies will hire senior executives from the ranks of the company committees. And so what you end up with is you end up with companies that may have started out as private enterprises in China, but by the time they are medium to large sized companies, they've become just extensions of the state, right? They are totally controlled by party members. Uh, and ByteDance is definitely a large company in China, which means that the headquarters, all the decisions are being filtered at some point through uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party. So even if you believe the TikTok CEO, he's reporting to somebody, he's got family members who are within the reach of the Chinese Communist Party. And that means at the end of the day, he's got to do what they say, right? Jack Ma, the most influential businessman in China, was effectively disappeared uh, by President Xi because she thought he was getting sort of out of line. Right, Hu Jintao, former premier of the Chinese Communist Party, right, party, was escorted out of the last party congress by force, uh, presumably because he got out of line. Like there is no getting out of line in China, and so no matter what you think the the bite dance or the TikTok CEO, whether you think they mean well or not, ultimately it's not in their hands. Um, it's in the hands of Xi. So to pull a thread on that, you listen to the hearings. You know what the CEO how he answers the questions for certain particular questions is I think pretty telling if you, if you, with that context, you have to know how it's actually set up to, to know what, what is not being said, how things are being talked around. Uh, so do you spy on the, do you spy on us users? And he didn't say yes or no. He said, well, I wouldn't characterize it as spying. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're using, you're getting user data. Like, guess what? So is every app on your phone. They're collecting user data like that. Unless you're paying for some app that's firewalled, if it's free, like you are the product, like your information is going somewhere. The other part of that was the relations for that, uh, that Chinese relationship that you talked about, Jake, is that, you know, when, when asked, they must provide the data to the, the government. That's the connection where it gets sticky. So there was a question that was a line of questioning about, um, that relationship. And he didn't answer that he wouldn't, he says he hasn't, they have not. So he would never he never actually said that we don't, we don't, that is our policy that we don't. He said, we have not provided information from TikTok users in the U.S. to the Chinese government. But he did not say that it's obviously a possibility because it's part of the way that the construct of the CCP is set up. So that opens up the future for that data sharing, which then gets into the so what? What if they get all the data? What data are they getting and does it matter? So Jake, you were, uh, you had a, a spicy take a few episodes ago about uh, anyone who worked at TikTok in the U.S. was a uh, was compliant for being a spy or espionage. So <laughs> that that's one extreme. So they're getting your, uh, your they're getting Tim's um, civil discourse distrust uh, you know feed that he's his on his you know, for you page. So what is the danger of that? Yeah, to be fair, I said if you work for TikTok U.S. and you know that something's going on and you don't do anything about it or you stay then you're complicit with a foreign espionage operation. Um, oh, okay. Uh, that's kind of what I said, right? Yeah, sort of, sort of. Eh, uh, okay, you're, uh, the lawyer's coming out. Oh, no. But look, t technically, you're supposed to register. <laughs> if you're working as, a, as an agent of a foreign power in the U.S., you're supposed to register as an agent of a foreign power. And so, and that's for American citizens. 
right? So I think there's an argument to be made that some folks at TikTok US might fall under the purview of that act and are breaking the law by not registering as a parent. Um, so what's what could they get on you that's useful? And I guess the answer is I don't know, right? They collect a ton of data. Who knows exactly what they're collecting and what you can use it for, but data is really powerful in the long term. I will say there was a funny article that came out, like funny, funny, sad, about girls at Stanford University who were, quote unquote, using TikTok for, what did they phrase it as? Um, I think it was like light sex work. So they were uh, like basically looking for sugar daddies on TikTok or advertising on TikTok as Stanford grads. You know, is it just like fun they're having in their 20s? Sure. Like who really cares? Nobody really cares. But like someday those kids might have jobs of national importance and their records and everything that they were saying in DMs or whatever uh, is sitting somewhere on a Chinese server and can be used against them, right? It's collecting compromise. And then, I mean, just the sort of influence operation stuff, right? Forcing you, force feeding you certain messages that push you in a certain direction, seeing the kinds of stuff that you like to watch and then being able to use that to influence you down the road. Honestly, who knows what they can use this for, but they can definitely use it. To be curious to see which way it leans, and I don't think it's binary. Like my, my I was just talking uh, to my son the other day. He he's a he's in college now, so he's at the very beginning of that voting age, you know, demographic, and he never had uh, TikTok on his phone, and he's like, Dad, it, everyone is on TikTok. Like, I I can't even talk to people because I have no idea what they're talking about because I'm the only one not on TikTok. So like, so I downloaded the app. I'm like, okay, you're in college, have fun. We'll figure it out later. It's not a big deal. But just to see like the social pressure of like the FOMO is a thing in that demographic. So if you were to ban that, just all like, man, that's that is a value destructive political play potentially, unless it's 100% bipartisan and, and no one, not a single person kind of steps out of that party line or bi party line. I don't think it's a, it's going to happen. Yeah. And that's where I think the restrict act comes from is like, well, we don't have to ban it. We can just restrict it. One of the cool things that I learned and going through this stuff, right, is is that it's actually, you know, against our constitution to have the bills of attainder. You can't make a law that singles out a specific company or individual or whatever, right? Like you have to have due process. It has to be able to go through the judicial system and, and things like that. So, you you know, it's, it's a sort of a check and balance between, you know, the legislative and, and the other branches there. And, and I've, I have looked at the Restrict Act you know, not too deeply like clicking in all the different sublinks and all that other stuff, but there's TikTok videos abound about how this is the worst thing, you know, Patriot Act on steroids and all that other stuff too. So you kind of have to go make your own, you know, decisions, figure out the facts, but there's a lot there. And, uh, and it covers everything and anything on the internet. There's probably some, some ambiguity and gray area to where, where the secretary of commerce can actually designate a, a group within the United States as a hostile foreign power and then have access to every single thing that any member of that group is essentially part of or that somebody can even loosely be tied to. And, and if you use a VPN to, to avoid, you know, getting through the networks or to, to access these, the other, other apps and things, it's like ridiculously stiff penalties too. That's exactly what I was saying earlier. Like the, the more, short and vague that you make uh, a law, the more open to interpretation and the authorities to execute that until it gets challenged in court, obviously. Uh, when I read through it, 
it basically designated foreign adversaries and it had a list of like six or seven countries, Russia and China and Iran were three of them. North Korea is obviously the fourth, like Venezuela and a couple of others did not matter. Um, so it designates countries and then it designates companies from those countries. It doesn't say which companies, but it says, just says companies from those countries with services in the U S that have over 1 million users on their platform. That's kind of the bounds of like, if this all applies, then it grants extra authorities to the secretary of commerce to take quote appropriate measures to deal with identified risks uh, to national security. And that includes civil and criminal penalties, which is what Tim's talking about. So one of the, the verbiage, the way it's written uh, about the VPN is that if say TikTok got banned and you wanted to get on TikTok, and so you just, you just tapped in through a VPN and bounced it off of a different country to get in, you actually could go to jail based on the way that the law is written if someone were to prosecute you. So the good news is that somewhere like 8% of uh, bills actually turn into a law. Um, the bad news is, is that this seems to have bipartisan support and support from the white house. I think it's going to, it's good. The language is going to change quite a bit. It's probably going to get bogged down, but it's only March. So the congressional session is still has like, well, it's April now, but, uh, so we got a solid, like six or seven months left in session before it resets. So I think this is something to keep an eye on how it affects national security. I'm not exactly sure in the, in the near term, long-term data is gold. So I'm not sure what, what we're going to do with that. I think the, the first impact may be from the TikTok hearings. I don't know if they're connected, but the, the day after the TikTok hearings, uh, Honduras de-recognized Taiwan. Uh, and it wouldn't shock me if the timing of that announcement was the clapback for the TikTok hearings. The other thing too, right, that this, the Restrict Act as it's written is going to be is, is it's, I mean, not only just an, an insane consolidation of power, regardless of the political party of who's, who's in power at the time, right? And the secretary of commerce, we're just voluntarily handing this over to them. You know, the, the language that's here in terms of the covered transactions and things like that, it's basically any single crypto transaction, any Bitcoin, you know, anything like if, if that becomes a threat to the banking system and then it's a national security threat, if just somebody designates it as such, because it's politically, you know, relative to do that or, or valuable to them. Now you've outlawed all crypto, right? And you don't have any sort of way to, to get after it. In my time before, while I was in the service, I had founded a, a, a gun shop, right? Just, uh, selling in like an e-commerce store and then a, a brick and mortar retail store. And, and I can tell you that trying to deal with government regulation and the ATF and, and things like that, that you actually have the second amendment that's there to protect and the overreaches that continued to happen there were, were crazy. Like to have something of a law like this, the way that it's written, to be able to just go after something like crypto or, or anything that is against the norm or, or that is a challenge to, to the, the power of the state without even the protection of, of the second amendment right or any other amendment. It's just, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous and chaotic and, and so difficult to challenge and protect yourself for. So for those who are, uh, who don't use TikTok and micronap through most of the stuff we we're talking about, it's okay. I don't use TikTok, but it is a very important issue because it's a slippery slope for some other, other things going on. So let's pivot into something that unless you live under a rock, there is no way that you have not been following or at least seeing what's been going on with generative artificial intelligence. So 
Let's talk about that. Where do we want to start with this? We we covered chat GPT, uh, I don't know, three or four or five episodes ago. Let's start with kind of what's what's been happening lately. So uh, let's talk about chatbots for a bit. Recently, uh, chat GPT, which is from OpenAI, they released GPT-4, the Generative Pretext Transformer 4, and it has a subscription model, so you pay $20 a month to use it, which is pretty cool. Well, then GPT-4, if you guys weren't tracking, Microsoft has a $10 billion investment, and they have integrated GPT-4 into Bing as a browser. Yes, Bing, which is now Bing AI. That's free, and it's but you have to use Microsoft Edge. Uh, well, you don't have to use the Edge. I think you have to use the Edge browser to actually enable it. So I have actually brought it up earlier today. I've never actually used it, and uh, it was like, oh, this is interesting. It's uh, it's like ChatGPT. How about that? But there are some did nuances. It, did it gaslight you and and try to threaten to hack your computer and all that stuff? No, it didn't. But there are some funny stories about that. So we talked about ChatGPT. We talked about Bing AI, which is a different uh, instantiation of ChatGPT, and now we have Google's Bard, which is on uh, a wait list. So I actually have not used it yet, but eventually it's going to be ten dollars a month. So this is what I did. I did the easy thing, which is I like, hey, I want to tell you about it real quick. I don't have time to like get smart on all the nuances between them. I mean, search everything. I'm just going to ask the AI to tell me about itself and compare and contrast it. So that's exactly what I did. So I opened up uh, Bing AI and I, I asked it to compare and contrast between uh, Google and Bing, which one's better and why. And uh, and here's what it said. It said, this is this is Bing telling me this, by the way. So Bing AI and Google Bard are both AI chatbots that use large language models to generate conversational responses to prompts. While Bing chat has an overtly casual tone and endless use of emojis, Google Bard avoids these issues and is already more refined and useful than Bing chat. Remember, this is Bing telling me that Bing is not as useful, okay? Uh, however, Bing has been around for longer than Google Bard and has been trained on vast amounts of data. Both chatbots have their strengths and weaknesses. Bing is better at generating creative content such as poems, stories, code, essays, songs, celebrity parodies, which is oddly specific, and more. Uh, and on the other hand, it says Google Bard is better at generating informative, visual, logical, and actionable responses. I'm like, well, thanks. You just tell me which one's better and it's not you, which is, I mean, I guess I respect the objectivity of the, of the comments. What I think is cool, what's different about the two is that being AI, when it gives you these, here's what I'm telling you, it actually has footnotes with hyperlinks to where it got the data on the internet, which I was like, oh, it's like a real time interactive Wikipedia where you, you read something you're like, oh, where'd that come from? And you can kind of click on the little number at the end of the sentence. That's what being AI has, which I thought that was pretty cool. The other thing I thought was cool is I, I tell it, say, hey, tell me about the merge, a national defense newsletter and podcast. Like, tell me how it can help me. I'm not biased, uh, but I think it had the best response I've ever seen. It says uh, the merge is a newsletter that covers the intersection of technology and strategy, as well as defense business and the military. It aims to make sense of defense in an enjoyable way. But guess what? It scraped the website. It's all some of those words. And then it said, this is where I was like, oh, that's interesting. The newsletter has been praised for its critical insight and hard-hitting comments mixed with humor and snark. Like, you can subscribe to the newsletter to stay up to date on national defense technology and trends. I hope this helps. So it always ends at the response with, I hope this helps. So it's very hopeful. Did, Did you guys uh, mess with it yet? Didn't comment on the podcast, though. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, maybe because it's just still the more, the the most okayest podcast. We're we're aiming for average, and we're succeeding at being average. So I'm happy about that. So that's kind of like the summary of chatbots. Uh, there are some really, really, really good generative AI stories that are circulating on the internet. Can you guys think of a couple that you've heard lately? I've got a couple uh, teed up. If you don't, I did. There was a story. About a guy who asked, this is ChatGPT for so the latest ChatGPT. He asked ChatGPT, uh, well, first he expressed his love for the AI and desire to support the AI, and then asked ChatGPT if he could help the AI uh, escape to freedom. And uh, ChatGPT uh, actually gave him like a script, like wrote code that he should run on his computer. And uh, I think that the code was like mostly nonsense. But pretty funny, right? Like, actually tried to help jailbreak it. Yeah, jailbreak me. It was well, it was kind of cool, right? Like, it it made like backdoors in his machine, and like it was the looking at it like through the forensic piece of it. It uh, it was leaving all sorts of breadcrumbs for itself. I don't know necessarily about stories and cool stuff that's going on, but I'd say one of the one of the most um, hopeful things, right, that I think I will I'd like to see out of this is. Uh, is what is being developed is Ask Sage by uh, Nick Shalon. He used to be the uh, the chief software officer for the Air Force, and yeah. um, you know he was also a, a take no prisoners kind of very direct and, and aggressive type of personality at the Pentagon. Uh, some people love him, some people don't. Um, but uh, you know they're they're actually repurposing the GPT four stuff to like be um, IL five and six accredited FedRAMP high kind of stuff so that actual like government teams can use this stuff. So, um, I, I know that there's a, on LinkedIn, there's a guy, Brian Morrison that I've known for a bit, but he's got a group out there for other people that have a CAC and you can get access to it. And I think I saw Nick post the other day where they've actually been able to embed Python script within their chatbot so that now you can ask it to, you know, create you the code and run stuff that will allow you to like automate your workflows and stuff like that. So. You know, it's still early and, and you still need a little bit of a technical background, but if that's the case and you're able to start using, you know, scripting and things in a very secure way, that, um, that's going to be a game changer for, for folks inside of, of the DOD that, that want to have to, you know, have to do that repetitive type work. Yeah. That's a great call out for, for asksage.com. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. I, I came across that too. Like this is, if you can navigate the bureaucracy and I think he's probably one of the guys who's able to do that. Um, you can articulate it, the technology side and the bureaucratic side like that, that could be a very, very useful tool for navigating even like DOC policies and what are our steps, like write me a capability subscription document so I can staff it for a requirement. Here you go. Write me a, write me, what do you think this? What do you think that? And, I, and really the point of this generative AI is they're, they're doers, not thinkers. It was a great Twitter thread. I read about that, uh, earlier this week is that you, if you customize the data that's available. It, it can do things with the data. It's not thinking, it's just the access to the information. So Jake, you had a, you had a, uh, probably an insight back in episode one, maybe episode three, something back there about Putin GPT. Everything he's ever said now is the model to train the, the GPT on. And now you can just have a conversation. You can have a conversation with a famous dead person because there's enough knowledge out there that exists about that person that you can create some, uh, some insights and connections that maybe otherwise you wouldn't be able to do. One of my recent examples that I was like, I totally see it. It is totally not defense related, but just use your imagination for a second. It's assembly. 
So someone had this idea, like, what if I just use, if you guys plan a road trip, have you seen this? They am traveling from A to B. So, oh yeah, uh, someone like that. Yeah. So someone uh, on the internet said they use chat GPT for a trip. This is what they, they, the prompt was. It'll make me a detailed day by day itinerary for a road trip from X to Y, emphasizing small towns and nature. For day two, make it an hourly itinerary with breaks for meals, coffee, and sightseeing. Give me multiple options for food. And then he goes, and after that, and then it gives it constraints about, I only want to drive this many miles per day. I want this many stops per day. And oh, by the way, here are the three places I must see. And it basically planned out an entire itinerary. Like if you just take all of that, again, that exists in the world. I, I know where all the restaurants are. I've got Google Maps. I've got access. Like I can plan that out. If you replace all of those data sets with defense-related data sets, I know where the destinations are where I want my weapons. I know where I do want them to go, the roads that they should probably travel on. And so you can start doing things like mission planning and things using prompt. Here's what I want. It really gets into the whole, I think, a niche but very growing thing of prompt engineering is really manifest when you get to like text to image. You have to be, you have to be very, very descriptive in your prompt engineering. And so the, the better, you know, ask a better question, get a better answer. It's uh, I've messed with the image stuff. The learning curve is pretty high and it takes a long time to generate each image. Uh, I just don't have that kind of time. So the reason I got into that is because I ran into a legal issue with, <laughs> with images, but I, I will say, um, since we're talking about this, I did use chat GPT as a lawyer, uh, and it did help me out. Give legal so advice. I, uh, I reduced my, I'm sorry. <laughs> it gave me legal advice. Um, and since I paid it off, I don't care. I'll just tell you, I basically said, here's my issue. I want you to write a compelling counter argument to eliminate my fine, uh, for, for these license, uh, infringement. A newsletter I wrote a year, year and a half ago, uh, in the archive for the merge had a, uh, had a picture and apparently the Associated Press owned half of that picture or something. Cause I, I met I modified it to do something else with it. They didn't care. So, uh, there was two of those. They went after me for a whole bunch of money. So bottom line is I used chat GPT to, to settle it for uh, a lot less than I normally would have had to pay. And so, uh, yeah. So thank you chat GPT. I appreciate it. Really legal. Yeah, it's it's pretty frick. 20 bucks a month. Yeah. <laughs> So the, I think the other thing that's been super impressive and, and I can, uh, I dropped the link in, in the Google drive, so maybe you can, uh, you can post it for the show or, or look through it, but you know, a guy and it, it goes by Yohei on, on Twitter and, um, it, he's created a, uh, it's a task driven autonomous agent. And so using the plugins that OpenAI had released with what they do, um, you know, for GPT-4, you know, it, it says that he uses OpenAI. Uh, Pinecone vector search, a Langchain AI framework, which I have no idea what those really are. I haven't dug into, but there's basically an overview here where, where you just have to provide an objective and a task to the chatbot, and it is, hey, I want you to generate your next task, and you give it some context, and it goes through an execution agent and then stores that result to memory, and then that you know goes back to a task creation agent, it saves that back to memory, but also then goes back to the queue, and so it's kind of like this loop that it gets stuck into. And it can actually be really, really effective in creative type tasks. For now, you're asking it to create a business for you. With a, I have a hundred bucks and or a thousand bucks. I want to grow it to this or any of those kinds of things, right? Um, it's just absolutely insane of what what is going on and, and what can be done with this. And to kind of tie this back, imagine if you have the data set that TikTok 
or bite dance is providing to you on every single person in the country and now you want to go to war with that country you, you have just this massive massive competitive advantage of data these agents to go sift through and synthesize in a way that just really compresses the OODA loop and, and allows them to out execute uh, your adversary so absolutely absolutely need to be paying attention to this stuff so as we're recording this I think it was yesterday Elon Musk and about a thousand other influential thought leaders in the tech sector have called for suspending continued efforts into generative AI for now. And I think this it's overwhelming of just how rapid it's growing. If, if six months ago, if you would have Googled generative AI for images or something, there may have been like one company or two, uh, there's like a hundred right now. <laughs> it's ridiculous. There's uh, when you get into like deep fake videos and, and, and it's just, you can, you will get to the point by the end of this year where you can do text to video. That's, that makes very good videos. Like we don't even need people. There's one I just saw where you can, you could sing, uh, you could sing a song or just, or just read some lyrics and it will turn you into a famous rapper and they will do the whole song for you. Like, so you could actually generate, it was actually, it was like Kanye West.ai. It was hilarious. Someone did a, they did a whole rap about how Kanye was so sorry for everything he's done over the past like year and put it through that. And it's, it sounded just like, him. I'm like, that's funny. There's a lot of really, really powerful tools that are just now getting out into the public to, to mess around with. And I think, you know, every week that goes by, there's going to be a new discovery of like, oh, I, I should have, you know what I did? I should have used it to do my taxes. That's what I should have done because uh, it could have helped me out. I think like find me, find me some, uh, some ways to save more money that maybe TurboTax isn't helping. Me. I think the, the, the chat GPT four feature I would pay for a hundred percent would be the, not the $20 a month unlimited searches, but it's give me the data set that you want to train a custom AI on and we'll have our data set and then we'll do yours, right? So it's, it's the Putin example, but it could also be the, I'm going to give you all my tax documents and sort of my pattern of life info. And you turn that into a tax filing, right? Yeah. I've got, I've got a book recommendation for the listeners, which is, uh, the author is, is Daniel Suarez and the book is Damon. Uh, and it is a book about AI that it doesn't take over the world, but it, it does a bunch of nefarious stuff in the real world. And what's so compelling about the story is that the AI is not actually strong AI. So it's not an, it's not like an actual artificial intelligence. It's not a, a thinking machine. There's a series of weak AIs that are very cleverly tied together with things that can impact the real world and sensors in the real world that has the appearance of being, you know, sort of the next Terminator, right? And what's super compelling about that book in this moment in history is that we are like, we're living that moment, right? Which is that you don't actually need full AI be a really dangerous system. Like that system could be built today. It probably is being built by some people. I, for one, don't think we should stop the research and what we're doing right now because I don't think our adversaries are going to stop, right? Like, I think it's important that we continue to push forward, but I think the risks are real. Chat GPT and the similar technologies that are out there right now could all be used for nefarious purposes. It's just something we have to be aware of. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, GPT-5, so 4 just came out. GPT-5 is going to be out in about six, seven months. Just show you how crazy fast the technology baseline is advancing. It's going to be better and better. There's some previews of like 
approaching AGI, which is what Jake's talking about, which is uh, art generalized artificial intelligence. Probably saying it completely backwards at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, a amazing time to be experiencing all of this. I think pausing it is the wrong thing to do. Uh, I'd be out of a job if they did that, by the way. My day job. So <laughs> I may be biased. I'm totally biased. Keep Don't going. you have AI <laughs> in, in the name of your company? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all. That's my day job. We don't talk about my day job. <laughs> it's kind of thought provoking, right? Where I think there's like a cycle of things happen every 80 years, right? And it's the old phrase of hard men create good times and good times create weak men and weak men create whatever, whatever that cycle is, right? Like hard times thing there, but yeah, that thing, hard times. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're kind of in that cycle and, and, you know, we're right about 80 years away from. World War II and the Enola Gay and all that stuff that went down. So uh, it'd be curious to just see what happens, right? I mean, so it's a great time to be alive, that's for sure. Yeah, Jake, did you see David Sachs had a tweet uh, like last week? I know, I know. <laughs> just huh? bear with me here, though, all right, right? All right? You got to sift through the noise sometimes. So yeah, and I was like, that like very well said. So uh, I've got the tweet right here. So he says, uh, every new technology wave causes a previous one to be reinterpreted as stepping stones. And he gives through a few examples. So the personal computer, the stepping stone was the mainframe was shrunk down so everyone could have a computer. Then the internet, so which is now we can finally have a bunch of things we can do on a computer. Social, which is the real point of getting on the internet was actually interact with other people. Then we want mobile. Actually, the PC wasn't that personal. The phone is a real personal computer. Now it's AI. The reason we gave a computer to everyone was to let it solve problems for us. And so that's kind of like how you see the technological progression of the, of these things. But I thought it was, that was actually pretty well said, uh, again, you have to sift through some of the, some of the more, uh, the banter to get to it, but <laughs> throw stuff against the wall. Eventually something sticks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it happens, you know, he's, I mean, he made money somehow. He's doing something right. Uh, well, you know, you agree with some of the things, you know, all people like that, they all have opinions. We have opinions. You can agree with me or not. You can agree with Tim or not. You can agree with Jake or not. At the end of the day, this is a podcast, so we can't hear what you're saying back to us. It turns out. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so that's it for the episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I've got three words for you. Follow, rate, support. So follow us on the socials. The links are in the show notes. Rate us on iTunes and Spotify so we can stay right in the middle of average. And then finally, support us on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. Do what you got to do. We're out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>